I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we interrupt the automated feedback loops between people, media, money, and technology. Press pause, zoom out, take a breath, see the forest, feel the breeze, then find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, filmmaker, writer, educator, and systems thinker, Nora Bateson. There's something about this possibility of recognizing the living complexity in ourselves and each other that then becomes this untold possibility. It's just, it's untold, it's unwritten. Nora and I will be interrogating this moment of crisis and exploring new ways to fight stupid. It's time to intervene on behalf of the living. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Support this show, get free stuff, and access to our Discord discussion boards. Go to teamhuman.fm slash support or patreon.com slash teamhuman. Read and listen to Team Human and read the whole Team Human book in weekly serialization at medium.com slash team human. I'm psyched to get to the conversation with Nora Bateson, but first let me respond to a common thread in email I've been receiving over the past few months, really. I guess the question really comes down to why can't I make Team Human into a thing in itself? People want to be able to go to the local Team Human chapter or build this thing out into an organization and uh, really have a, a, a Team Human brand and and physical clubhouses or a, a, an organization that's like funded or a nonprofit. And I've been resisting it. And, and I'm glad I have because honestly, Team Human, it, it's, not, it's not a thing in itself like that. 
we are doing some of the most advanced wizardry imaginable in the war against stupid. And that wizardry really takes the form of deeply honest engagement. Just seeing, hearing, or being a human being honestly, openly, vulnerably engaging with another person is the magic act. That is one of the highest order things you can do. And I mean real, not just your soft, loving, compassionate part, the whole thing. Just be there. You know, this is, honestly, this is preparation for a cosmic war. I think most of you know we're already in that cosmic war, but boy, uh, it's still just at the very beginning of unfolding. You know, we have to do this, this team human thing, this deeply honest engagement, this, this uh, cosmic and psychic wizardry. We have to do it everywhere and for no credit. You know, we have to do it as individuals in our communities. And no, you, you, you don't get a uniform or a helmet or anything. You, you might be the only one in your town who gets what it is that needs to happen. And you got to go and just do it. Right, Team Human, that the brand, the show, the book, whatever this is, you know, it it can be of utility value in finding the others. It, it's a it's a convenient name for a process, but it can never really be its own thing. You know, there's more than enough things already, and thingness itself can even be a problem. Right, we start thinking about how to preserve and promote the thing, the, the team human meme or the ethos, or that person didn't say what it really is. They, they're, they're miscommunicating what it is, you know? And, and you, you start looking at the thing rather than the behaviors and, and the compassion that we're trying to engender. We look and focus on the shell, the, the name, the container. It reminds me of a, an encounter I had a long time ago. There was a Jewish uh, family philanthropy that really wanted me to help them rethink and and kind of uh, reboot Judaism as a more contemporary, interesting thing for people to engage with. And I remember I asked him, I said, you know, well, what if I could get it? So over time, everybody in the world was doing Sabbath Everybody was reading Torah. Everybody was engaging in all of the stuff that Judaism is founded on, all those principles of iconoclasm and social justice. Only nobody knew it was called Judaism. Would you be okay with that? And right away he said, no. And that's how I knew, ah, I have nothing in common with this guy, right? He was more concerned with the name that people knew they were doing this thing called Judaism than that people actually did what Judaism was created. And, and, and he didn't know the history that the, even the word Jewish came way, way after um, any of this stuff was invented. But that's the problem, right? This idea that we care about the thing more than the th whatever it is the thing is supposed to do, right? We care more about the word marriage than having a great relationship, right? But the biggest problem with thingness 
is that once we have a thing, we can be identified and neutralized. And that's particularly dangerous if we're out there practicing a form of wizardry, a form of pro-human, pro-life, pro-organismic jujitsu. We don't want to have a thing that, that could be used to tag us. We can become immediately othered and identified. And it doesn't mean we're going to be rounded up and shoved into unmarked cars, although that seems to be happening a lot lately. But it does mean that the, that the things we're doing will too easily get overshadowed by the name under which we're doing it. The nouns will take over from the verbs. And that's the one biggest tendency we need to fight against. Even back in the Bible, really, if you want to talk about Jewish philanthropies, even back in the Bible, Moses keeps asking God its name, and God won't do it. And eventually, you know, Moses keeps prodding and prodding. God finally just says, basically, uh, my name is, is, is. You know, it's just the just like to be. The easiest way to translate it is, I am what I'm being. Whoa. Right? So Team Human is really just convenient shorthand for a few tens of thousands of people who listen to this podcast or identify with its mission to find each other or to share a point of reference. And yeah, you're welcome, you know, do meetups. Uh, you can do Team Human meetups. We've got a, a, a link on the website for people to help do that if they want to set up meetups where they are to find other members of Team Human where you live or you can join our Discord channel. Uh, community is a great thing, and it's fine to have a community around the work that we're all doing together. But sometimes I think the greater challenge is for us to be fully human when we're out in the world interacting with like non-team human people? How do we exercise team human values in our local school board meetings when half the community wants their kids in the classroom, the other half wants them learning remotely safe from COVID? Or how do we exercise team human approaches when we're doing race work or climate activism or local economic resilience with any of the other human beings and things that we're doing? Team Human, it's great. It's a clubhouse. It's shelter from the storm, a place to recharge and to share tools and approaches we've developed out there. You know, and a lot of people are also asking me, you know, about what's coming. <laughs> what's happening? And while I'm honored that you want to know what I think, I really truly don't know what's going to come next. I've often been mistaken for a futurist and uh, Team Human as some prediction for the human future. But my work is really more about what we can do now to best position ourselves for what's ahead, or even to have some influence over it. Not to predict the future, but to do the future, make the future. You know, it, make the future a verb, not a noun. And that's what I've been offering. It's how to think about what's happening to our environment and to us. How to frame it and act on it positively. No one needed me to say that digital was coming. Well, maybe some did, right? Publishers did laugh at me in the 80s when I pitched them a book arguing that computers and networking would become part of our daily lives. But, uh, you know, while I may have been early on the scene, I was hardly engaging any prophetic powers. You know, what I was writing about was really an approach to being digital, to life 
In the Trenches of Hyperspace, the subtitle for my first book, which was originally called Coping in Siberia. Now, I was less concerned with Siberia, which is what we ended up calling the book, than the way we humans are coping with it. How are we going to inhabit the digital environment? And how can we engage with one another more fruitfully in it? And at the beginning, a lot of that had to do with understanding the biases, the affordances of the different media platforms we were using. So newspapers, they tended to want articles about, you know, how do we set up a web browser? And I wanted to write articles on what web surfing does to the way we think about things, how we relate to brands or to power, whether the web would be less egalitarian and democratic than the text-only internet that preceded it. But the biggest change that we've all been coping with, really, and part of what this upcoming conversation is about, is cybernetics. That's the word Norbert Wiener used to describe the way machines and digital machines, autonomous machines of this new era, the way they would use feedback to respond to the world around them. You know, feedback is basically a, a set of loops. The industrial age, it was a world of cause and effect where an actor does something to an object, then the whole sequence is complete. Cause and effect. Man acting on nature, owners acting on slaves, subjects acting on objects. And this was really different. Feedback, uh, cybernetics meant that you act on an object, but then it acts on you. Then you act differently toward it. There's a feedback loop between the subject and the object, the person and the machine, the component and the system. So the whole Western understanding of the world gets obliterated. You can't look at a thing in isolation anymore. Where are its boundaries? The cow is part of the pasture. The sky interfaces and mixes with the water. There's no outlines on anything. That coloring book view of the world stops making sense as everything folds into everything else. And that's both the great and horrifying thing about this age. Who am I? Where am I? It's totally incompatible with identity politics because there's no such thing as an identity distinct from the environment in which that identity is being manufactured and arbitrarily or, or artificially split off from the whole. It's not. It can't be. It's all still connected, feeding back in one cybernetic system, like a forest, a coral reef, or topsoil, or a gut biome. Out in the media space, it's even more confusing. We used to be spectators, audiences to shows on the tube, and now it's screens within screens, and tweeting about what we see on TV, or, or is TV broadcasting what we tweet? What more evidence do you need when the President of the United States is the tweeter-in-chief? The feedback has become the source. The response has become the call. But just because it's all one big system of feedback loops doesn't have to paralyze us. That's where humans come in. This is our sole superpower, to see the feedback loops themselves and then intervene. As human society itself becomes a chaotic blur of automated cycles, a few wary souls rose up, made their presence known to one another, and embedded this reality with a higher purpose, with intention, with love. And that is Team Human. 
I went to a weird little gathering a year or so ago. It was called Rehumans, and it was a group of very well-meaning, mostly privileged people, but they were looking to, in their words, inspire leaders committed to understanding what it means to be human in the 2020s and beyond, as our times are complexifying and our spirit is uniting. Yeah, there's a lot of trigger words in there for me, too. A bit too touchy-feely and abstract at the same time. But they are really nice people. They're onto something good. And they asked Nora Bateson and me to do a webinar a couple of weeks ago for their members. I've had Nora on the show before. It was a couple of years ago, just moments after we met for the first time. It was one of those love-at-first-sight experiences. Not some romantic thing, but more like meeting a cosmic partner that you just have to kind of touch antennas with. Put this way, if this journey is longer than one lifetime, then Nora Bateson and I have been on it together for quite a while and in many forms. So here's Nora Bateson and me picking up our lifelong discussion, this time for the Rehumans Group, and now for you. I was reminded recently, I guess because of all this uh, Zooming, you know, I'm doing four or five of these kinds of things a day right now. And a couple of days ago, when I was feeling kind of as if all the prana had been sucked out of my body by, by Zoom, I flashed on a memory of when um, I'd been doing a play in high school where I was supposed to smoke a cigarette. And my dad found a pack of cigarettes of merits in my jacket pocket. And he said, oh, you want to smoke? Come on. And he took me in the backyard and made me smoke the whole pack of cigarettes until I was throwing up. And I kind of feel like that's what's happening now. It's like, oh, you like the internet? Oh, you want to be a hacker and talk to people online and play? All right, here you go, kid. And it's as if I'm being, you know, overdosed on the internet. And what it's done is not just make me nauseous of the internet. I mean, you think about it, the Amish say, you know, one photo steals your soul. Imagine what a Zoom conversation does. It goes to your prenatal chi, but the, 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 the amount that's, that it feels like it's extracting. I mean, what it's done for me is helped me really distinguish between the positive utilitarian promise of these technologies and their utter incapacity to connect people on an organismic level of, of rapport, even in the early wildest psychedelic moments of the net, I never imagined the internet actually connecting us into the global brain. Rather, it was that the internet would be like training wheels or a test run or a simulation. It was almost an invitation to think, this is what it would be like if we were connected in a global brain, but it's not the actual thing. And it seemed to me that you just go online long enough to deprogram yourself out of television spectator passivity, and it can model a new 
style of engagement, a new organismic style, a systemic, fractal, holographic understanding of the way things work. But then you go out in the world and actually do real rapport, rapport supported by the six to 800,000 years of evolution that taught us how to you know, see if someone's pupils are getting larger or smaller as they speak, whether their breathing is syncing up with yours, whether their face is flushing. And you get the, the real biological feedback loops that are of necessity repressed in this kind of, of exchange. So what's top of mind for me is the, the lesson that I and hopefully other people are learning about what's great about these spaces and what are these spaces lacking so that when, if and when this forced isolation is over, we can you know more easily see, oh, this is good for certain utilitarian functions. It's great for getting information. It's great for seeing how to do long division, but it's not great for a student to learn how to do mimesis of their teacher. It's not great to model what the body and mind look like and smell like when they're learning and discovering. It's not really great for connecting parents and children and people. And that we'll, uh, um, you know, we'll have a, a new appreciation for, for the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the digital sphere. What's top of mind for you, Nora? What's top of mind for me is I've been playing with this idea that is a response to the belly full that I have of this whole field of change making. And, you know, you feel like you had to smoke the whole pack of cigarettes in the backyard and vomit up the internet. And I feel the same way right now about the world of change making, which is really uncomfortable because I love all of these people who are here hoping for a sustainable future. I have been part and parcel to all of this for generations. Something's not right. There's something saccharine. There's some artificial something. There's something wrong. And the thing that I feel is that something is this, it's this trap. And the trap is that we are somehow capable of manifesting thought and language and expression that is somehow going to be outside the system that created it. Mm. And so it's like no matter how earnest or diligent or deep or rigorous or how good the intention is, the thing just keeps feeding itself you know, the lizard eating its tail and we're going around and around and around. And I'm, I'm just so concerned about it because in, in my terminology, this is an epistemological loop. Mm. We're caught in this kind of like soup of fluid mind traps. And, you know, I, I was posting today about even this word sense-making like that word sense making has lost all it, it has no sensorial ground anymore it's actually a tag into a body of prescripted ideas right and so i'm really worried about what are we talking about when we're talking about change like this it's so urgent 
you know, at, at an ecological level, at a cultural level, in, at, in our personal lives, in an epistemological, like in every sense, in every institution, there is the need for, well, in the words of Monty Python, something completely different. And what is that? How do you do something completely different when you're inside the system? Mm. We are the system. It's funny. I'm reminded of, um, you know, Ram Dass's favorite quote, the world is perfect as it is, including my desire to change it, (laughs) which at least he acknowledged he was part of that system. And I, I feel like some of the problem that you're talking about is a Western problem. And it's what happens when we use the Western logic of progress and change and then shroud it in our more kind of new age understandings of spirit. So we look at computers that can reboot and then we assume, and I've used the word too, that we can somehow, oh, let's just reboot civilization with these new rules. Let's start again. And you can't start again. There is no start again. The legacy is there. You don't, we can retrieve some things, but we can't start over. And that's that sort of Western idea that, well, we're going to go to this new landscape. If not a new landscape of globe, a new landscape of mind. We're going to go there and pioneer it. And then once we're there and we figured it out, then, and I hate this language, we're going to get people to understand this. Right. Right. Okay. Exactly, Douglas. That's the thing that is in the underlying piece is this place where it goes is to this idea of we're going to change people's mindsets or we're going to raise their consciousness. And there's something about that. There's a lot about that that is actually in deep violation of what actually is life. And the way that change happens and the way that life moves is through unanticipated pathways of relationship to more relationship to more relationship. And you don't get to say which way that goes, right? And so there's something so important about showing up and standing back at the same time. And not really knowing what that looks like. And I think actually that that's been, that paradox is a really important place to hold. Uh, you know, Harari, Harari talked about the paradox of, you know, if you, if you think you have free will, you don't have any free will. Because mm-hmm. all the choices that are set before you came out of the context that came before you. And you think you're making some big choice, but those things were there to choose from. So who gave you the choices? Where did those come from? So it's not really your free will, is it? Then he goes on to say, well, but the second you realize that you don't have any free will, at that point, you get a little. And I'm trying not to be abstract here because actually this is really down to earth and it's it's really an issue, which is the question of, Who are you to think that you have something that is somehow more righteous than others that could be part of the change? And this other piece that says, if you don't show up, no one's going to show up and the thing is going to just keep moving into destruction of life. Part of what it reminded me of is the uh, kind of the false binaries that have emerged in this, you know, largely digitally driven movement for social change. So now with the, the Black Lives Matter protests, there's sort of two competing charges on, on how a white person is supposed to be. 
on the one hand, we're told, don't post anything. You Now it's your turn to stand back and listen. But then there's another group that's saying, oh no, if you are not posting, then you are a racist. And the only, and now you have to be an anti-racist. You know, and once I, once things are divided, once the paradox can't be held, that you're either a racist or an anti-racist, that you're either participating or not participating, and either one is going to be a problem for one group or the other, there's a problem. That's what leads us towards, you know, author- authoritarian, oversimplified outcomes. And it's, it's this, this in-between space that you're talking about, this fuzzy place, you know, which is where it's not like, oh, the solutions lie there, but the kind of new normative state, if there is, or the healthy normative state is, is somewhere in there. And how do we, um, and that to me is the best reason to have a group like this, is it gives you the, the nourishment and courage you need to maintain that liminal in-between kind of open position rather than just doubling down on whatever your social solution might be. Yeah. And I'm so glad I let you riff because that was the perfect. Um, <laughs> you remember when, it wasn't very long ago, but the, the big crisis of the moment was immigration, which it still is. But nevertheless, they're piling up now. There were people certainly in Europe, and I don't know about in the United States, that were readily kind of dishing out this metaphor of the lifeboat, okay? And the metaphor of the lifeboat was looked a little, you may have heard it, it looked a little something like this. There's 32 people in the water and the lifeboat can only hold 17. And if you bring all 32 on board, you're gonna sink the boat. And that was the metaphor for why we can't bring, why we can't let everybody in because it will destroy our system. We'll sink our system if we let everybody in. Okay, but... No, you know, 32 people in the water is not the numbers one through 32. It's 32 complex systems, 32 people with experience and life and imagination and possibility and, you know, pupils that expand and contract and breath that moves and, right? It's not the numbers. They're not like numbers floating in the water. The logic of the numerical process there does not apply. We were those 32 people. We are 31. Let me tell you what we would do. We would find a way. And that's the piece. We would find a way. It's funny. You know, know, in Talmud, you know, the Jewish book of laws, it's actually against the rules to count people. Mm. It's a fundamental rule. You know, and even if you're supposed to have 10 people for a minion in order to pray, you're not allowed to count them. You have to kind of feel if it's about 10. And partly, you know, it's because of the census and the Romans and all that. But partly it's because when you're counting people, you're, you'll tend to think of humans as property, as slaves. It's non-systemic. It's non-living. It's quantified rather than qualitative. And the logic of numbers just doesn't work. Basically, what you're doing is dehumanizing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were on that boat, we would figure it out. Some of us would take turns swimming. We would tie our clothes together. We would pull people. We would like, we would work it out. If it took us a longer time to get there, so what? We would not leave anybody behind. We would find a way. And at least a boat is a real boundary condition. You know, nation states are not real. Nation states were invented by monarchs, you know, as a, as a way of consolidating city states into these artificial political boundaries that there's no, you know, when, when, when Donald Trump says there's no more room in the inn, it's like, 
what does that even mean? I mean, it means it means nothing. It means nothing. And if you play it out, you end up with people asking the wrong questions. And those mm. wrong questions look something like, well, who gets to decide who goes on the boat and who doesn't? Who gets to decide what that criteria is for being on the boat or not being on the boat? Who gets to, you know, you get into all this crazy stuff around you know, who's got the most life ahead of them? Who's got the, the most value in their skill base? Who's, you're asking all these crazy questions. Those are all the wrong questions, but they become very dramatic and very engaging when your life is on the line. And those are the questions that you're living by. Right. And they're all variations on basic John Nash game theory, you know, and we've seen tons of great science fiction, you know, from Gattaca to the 100 to the 3% or whatever, all these science fiction things that are using this, this sort of fixed resources, non-regenerative earth model as the, the premise of some walking dead future where we have to pick how many people are going to make it and how many aren't, where you're in a constant prisoner's dilemma. And Mm -hmm. there's a feedback loop of that prisoner's dilemma mindset, even in socialism of we have scarce resources and we've got to divide them out properly and all, which in some ways is the fundamental conceptual problem here. And, you know, to, to, to your work and your dad's is, no, 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 it's not. These are these are iterative systems that we're a part of, not arithmetical quantities. Exactly. And and when you go there, there's possibility. Vast possibility. But the possibility is not the same. And you can't map it, you can't chart it, but you know it's there. So the possibility of this group of 32 people in this moment is very different than the possibility of a different group of 32 people in a different moment, or even half of us and half of another group. There's something about this possibility of recognizing the living complexity in ourselves and each other that then becomes this untold possibility. It's just, it's untold, it's unwritten, and it's wild. It's wild. That's what it is. My fear, though, is that being the, the last generations to have leveraged and exploited this artificial mathematical disparity, to have basically, you know, corporate capitalism is the game that was built on top of this false quantified way of understanding humanity. It's like, well, now we're willing to give that up. And there are underclasses who are like, oh, hold on a minute. Now you can't just declare airy-fairy systems theory. It's our turn to be in your houses, in your swimming pools. And you're, we've come, I feel like Western society has come to this self-awareness a little late. You know, maybe a little <laughs> late for the climate, a little late for all of the species that we've wiped out, and a little late for the black and brown people that we enslaved to this point. It's a tricky thing to unwind, I guess is what I'm saying. It is. And I think it's about, it's about a different question. It's about finding yeah. a way, which is really a different question than how do we change people's mindset. 
Which is so elitist and so top down. And so, I mean, God, oh, we know better because we've done ayahuasca and now we're going to bring back our, I mean, and you know, all these groups that we, I see you in the Zooms of you know, also, all of these great, well-meaning European white males who have these various organizations that are going to somehow bring their great psychedelic knowledge of, of indigenous practices to all humans as if and I, I mean, it's a beautiful sentiment, as if we're going to sit together, maybe get stoned, and figure it out. You know, we're going to figure this out. And once we figure it out, well, then, of course, we'll share what we figured out with everybody so they can all benefit. And that's exactly the piece of that <laughs> is the system reproducing itself, right? That image you just painted is the perfect description of what I started saying, which is this is what I'm worried about is that the system keeps trying to describe itself in new ways and, and have another round. Just one more round. Come on. (laughs) One more. But I can understand it's a survival. It's a survival mechanism because the system has a sort of a life of its own in some ways. And it's looking for, Oh, what if I present myself to, to people as this? You know, and we don't realize it's the same, you know, there's the same, the second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. We don't even see it. You know, we just see a lifeboat. Or the next new thing. So it was the green economy and then it was sustainability and then it was, uh, you know, they just keep coming. But each one of these things is an iteration of the system producing another map of itself, but obscuring the territory. And systems theory itself has gotten a bad name because people are using it the same way. You know, so you get these sort of systems theory game designers saying, I'm going to build an eco city in this part of Africa. And they, they plan it out like it's a Sim City thing. And they can use fractals and iteration to show how things are going to build out. And it's like, oh, so now you're trying to, you know, now you're recontextualizing systems and feedback loops as yet another new project of Western civilization. And it comes through this instrumentalized thing. It's like, we're going to use this tool to do this thing. And I guess what I'm really looking for in my world right now, and this sort of warm data stuff that I've been playing with, is giving communities on the ground access and this experience of their own complexity, their own overlapping, multi-context, memoried, process so that they can actually find a way. It's something so different than collaboration, okay? Because collaboration, I think, can easily get folded into this discourse that without actually realizing it, you start to think on that lifeboat, well, Douglas is good at this, and Nora's good at that, and Bill's good at this, and Euron's good at that, and John's good at this, and everyone's going to do the thing they're good at. No, 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 no. We're going to have to do things we never did before and find that we're good at things we never knew we had in us. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's resisting that technocratic urge that's so dominant now. You know, in some sense, it was, you know, Cambridge over Oxford or what were they, the two ways, you know, that sort of the, the technocratic way versus the, the humanistic way. And what we're trying to do is retrieve the humanism, thus, you know, even the name of this stuff, the, you know, rehumans, and to help people have, uh, uh, or to help ourselves anyway, have faith in the more humanistic past, because they don't give you the instantaneous, you know, metric feedback 
thing. And, you know, as a social justice Jewish warrior person, I worry that, well, wait a minute, is this somehow lazy or soft or less real than mm-hmm. how have you increased the GDP of, of Taiwan? It's like, well, I'm working on yeah. a different level. And that's the thing. I mean, you can't count the productivity. There is no impact measurement. If you're really doing systems work, there is no KPI. It's impossible to have an impact measurement because the actual consequences are taking place outside the context that you started. They're happening in relational process, not in direct response to the thing you thought you were solving. So that's a tricky one because it yeah. doesn't fit. It's not on the spreadsheet. The place where the, the consequences and the results are is elsewhere. Because here's the thing. This is a good one for you, Doug. What about that moment when someone says, couldn't we make a Cambridge Analytica for good? For the good guys? Right, which we- you can't because the medium is the message, finally. Exactly. You know. So you can't do that. And the second you've asked that question, your whole way right. of thinking has actually just, you know, changed over to the dark exactly. side. Exactly. And that's the whole, you know, the hum- humane technology movement, bless their hearts. They all went through the captology program at Stanford and think, oh, look how captology was used to isolate people and advertise to them and do all this. What if we use captology to help create feedback loops for goodness and niceness and all that? And it's like, no, the computer can't nudge me to be a better human. It can only nudge me to be a better computer. Because being a better human requires all sorts of possibilities that are not present right. in the configuration of the, you know, the listing of what makes you a good human. It has exactly. to do with somebody it's, you sat next to on a bus in third grade. Exactly. It's what the it's the what the computers would consider the junk DNA of human behavior is where the real signal is. You know, their mistake you know, the person reaching up for the note when they're singing gets auto-tuned out of existence and it's seen as the noise. When we know that's the signal, that's the way that person reached for the note, that's where all the communication actually happens. It's funny, what this makes me wonder about, it seems like a different question, but it's not. Is it possible to be doing what we're saying while still having a plan B, 401k retirement plan in the bank. In other words, most of us who are talking all rehumany still <laughs> have enough resources stored away in S&P 500 index funds to survive at least our lifetimes even if things go to shit. Does the ownership of that stuff, does the presence of that personal lifeboat that most of us are still trying to create or hang on to, even as society falls apart, do we have to let go of that in order to do this? I'm starting to think we do. I'm starting to think that the whatever, a couple of hundred thousand dollars I have in a S&P index fund is doing more damage than I can correct through rightful living. And having that parachute, that safety net. I know to some people, it's like when they hear he's got $200,000, they're like, that's not a safety net, buddy. (laughs) It's not going to do it. But, you know, to me it is. But if I have that, does it make it impossible for me to really be all in on the, I don't want to call it the solution, but the uh, society that we're talking about? 
I, I don't know. I have a couple of different responses to that. I think it's a really interesting question because on the one hand, it's like there's still something to lose, right? So there's still something to protect. And without knowing, you can protect things accidentally while thinking you're transforming them. You're accidentally protecting them. This is textbook addiction behavior, right? You talk about addiction, you talk about the quitting smoking or whatever it is. You quit smoking on you know, Monday through Friday, but you're still having cigarettes on weekends and you still have a pack in the drawer. And there's, you know, it's like, you know that you need to, you're perfectly aware. You talk to other people about how they should quit with you, but you're still actually, (laughs) right? So the addiction factor, which is not, I mean, that's a, that's a non-trivial factor, the addiction piece. Um, It has to do with imagining that we could actually live so differently that we can't imagine what that is. It's this thing someone described to me once as, you know, it's like if you told everyone they had to learn how to breathe underwater by next week, it's that level of panic. Like, I can't, how do I breathe? I don't know how to learn how to breathe underwater. Like, how do I do that? I don't have any gills. I don't know how to grow gills. How am I going to learn to breathe underwater by next week? I don't know how to do that. This is how I live. I live on land. I'm a land person. And the panic of, well, maybe I could just like get a straw or maybe I could, and you start to figure out a way to not quite, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I think we've seen a lot of figuring out a way to not quite make the change. We're going to almost get there. There was this group that I was working with a few years ago and they had a really interesting radical approach. And their approach was to say, not how do we stop the upheaval of this transformation and, you know, whatever you want to call it, systems breakdown, whatever you want to call it. But what can we put in place for the people who come after to rebuild? Now, that's an interesting question because it changes the thinking you have going into it. It stops being about how do we trim and adapt and and taper and all those little things that don't actually make the change. There's an inevitability to approaching things that way, which is a little scary. But I feel like the things that we would do to make the inevitable collapse less painful are the same things that we would do to try to prevent the inevitable collapse. Exactly. But we're afraid to do them. That's my point exactly, Doug. And even if we do want to be you know, pessimistic, and you know, so what we're going to do is soften the blow have a softer landing. So the collapse of Western civilization will kill fewer people or lead to you know, less species collapse and less environmental. What does that look like? It's like, okay, then let's develop, you know, what are these people going to need? They're going to need some alternative currencies that don't need central banks. They're going to need ways of communicating that don't need you know, necessarily the internet. They're going to need regenerative food supplies that don't need global supply chains in order to ship you know, shrimp from the Gulf of Mexico to Thailand to, and back to the U.S., you know. So all those, you know what I mean, which is what we do now. It's just crazy the amount of waste. And something like COVID is a teacher on that level when it's like, oh, we don't know how to make ventilators in the U.S. Even 1950s style ventilators, we can't do it. You know, and we got all the little kids with their 3D printers and they go, oh, wow, so we can make three in a week. It's like, all right, so now we see the limits of 3D printing. And that was a nice hobby, but it's not a manufacturing base. And so what, is, what does it look like? 
not just as a thought experiment, but it's a less totalizing way to go about structural reform. It's less about, oh, we've got to replace that system with this one and we've got to win some ideological battle. And it's like, no, 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 let's just, oh, so how can we make this town a little bit more resilient and have this thing a little bit? The other thing is there is this inevitability. So on the one hand, it's like, do we need to address this or is it just going to happen? And there's a part of me right now that's just like, I don't know if we should be even talking about the future anymore. Because I don't know what what we can know. I just sort of feel like every time there's a conversation, it turns into these weird, flat imaginings. And they don't have the detail of the richness of the complexity of all the pathways that, that actually life requires. And so you get these weird, you know, like ideas like, oh, okay, what we have to do is make sure every community has a community garden. You know, and that seems like a great idea, except for that that community doesn't want that garden. And you put that garden in there and they start, you know, it fragments. Right. And this community is really good at making nuts and bolts, you know, and that community doesn't want to make any of those. So maybe they can trade with each other and be neighbors. You know, and, and you're right. There's a there's a brittleness to conversations about the future. And that brittleness then leads, I'm sure, a couple of people even in this group to think, well, I'm going to keep my my shelter, you know, my my fallout shelter well supplied. That's the problem with having any of these conversations with tech people is they immediately want to take, you know, a couple of hundred million of their dollars and, you know, build a bunker in New Zealand with it. So the future casting really does engender this very limited, narrow, narrow imagination. It's sort of a, the skills of the narrow imagination rather than, you know, presentism, which really seems to employ a much more, much more of a 360 degree approach to, uh, to problem solving. Well, for me, certainly it's this work that I'm doing in communities with warm data. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. And it's about allowing people the room to see their own complexity and that in other people and to start to ask questions and create pathways that are coming out of the strange moire phenomenon of their contexts overlapping. And that is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's so unfamiliar and unpredictable that you can't find a grant for it. You can't describe it to a charity. It doesn't exist on the, on the post-its. The things that they are doing are coming from the richness of their details. And, you know, like if you really want to know how life happens, that's how it happens. Like, how did all of us end up in this Zoom tonight? through the richness of our details of our lives from all different directions across generations, we ended up here tonight. And so when I think about the future, that's what I'm thinking about is the question of what are all the tiny little relationships that I can tend to and give some kind of tonality of care in and complexity and imagination and juiciness and life, right? So that when those relationships go to make another relationship, there's more life. Just how do you, how do you allow for vitality 
to take place, you create relationships that make more relationships, but you don't get to say where they go. You don't get any credit for it. You probably don't get a grant. And you definitely have no idea what will happen. So I have to let go of all that planning and that imaging and that instrumentalizing because life wants to just find its own way. You know, the way to embrace uncertainty is to remember that being human is a team sport. If you're, if you are trying to embrace uncertainty alone, then there's gosh, you know, then if you're, if you're part of a group, then the only thing that's, that needs to be certain is certain, you know, and everything else, it stops, kind of stops mattering in a certain way. For me, that's been the only, um, that's been the only way to overcome my own kind of brittleness of comprehension and my own level of fear. You know, if, you know, if I were holding Nora's hand, for example, I'd be scared of nothing, right? Well, folks, that's, a, that's actually a beautiful place to kind of bring this to a clo- <laughs> close. <laughs> yeah. Let's I all hold Nora's hand. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Nora and Douglas, for uh, thank you for just being who you are and for engaging us in your dialogue today. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was author and systems thinker Nora Bateson. You can find out more about her work at BatesonInstitute.org and read her book, Warm Data. You can find out more about Nora Bateson and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of this ad-free show. Join listeners like Gary Coulter, Brian Buckman, Michael Allen, Jonathan Snyder, and Jed Disentrope. Get access to our new Team Human Discord discussion channel, as well as, any day now, a new archive of never-heard conversations between me and Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, John Barlow, Willis Harmon, and more. You can read my articles and the Team Human Manifesto at medium.com slash team human. Or just buy the book, Team Human, your perfect quarantine reading or listening material. Team Human is produced by Josh Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.